This episode of the Trek Geeks Podcast is brought to you by Audible.com. Get a free audiobook download and a 30-day free trial at audibletrial.com slash trekgeeks, and you'll find over 150,000 titles to choose from for your iPhone, Android, Kindle, or any MP3 player. Hey there, this is Vic Mignogna, Captain James T. Kirk from Star Trek Continues, and you're listening to the biggest little show this side of the Alpha Quadrant. It's the Trek Geeks Podcast with Dan Davidson and Bill Smith. Just a little show this side of the Alpha Quadrant. This is the one and only Trek Geeks podcast. Thank you so much for downloading and for listening. We really appreciate your being here. This is episode 33. We've made it this far and Dan hasn't killed me yet, so it's a good day. Speaking of which, I'm your co-host Bill Smith. And joining me as he always does at this portion of the show, he's your private dancer. A dancer for money. He'll do what you want him to do. He's the queen of soul. He's Dan Davidson. Dan, welcome aboard, buddy. Thanks, pal. I just got done shaving those awesome legs of mine from that video. <laughs> yes. But before we get started, I do want to say one thing in all seriousness. Yes. I hope you had an awesome birthday, my friend. Oh, happy birthday, pal. Thank you so much. Yeah. My, um, my birthday is always a happy occasion. My wife and I are going out tonight to have dinner. Yeah, During the week, it's always tough because you get work the next morning and... Yeah, sometimes you get work in the evening, and uh, but we'll go out tonight. We'll celebrate and have a great time. Um, uh, another year older, whether I'm wiser, is up for debate. But uh, I'm enjoying it, and that's all that matters. But thank you so much for the birthday wishes, and thank you to the people online who uh, who reached out and wished me a happy birthday. It is truly appreciated. Yeah, you have a lot more friends than I do. That's true. Maybe you should take a look inside yourself for that one. <laughs> but you know what? I got the most important friend, and that's you. Oh, uh, wow. What all do you right, need? Let's get started. What do you need? I feel ill all of a sudden. <laughs> <laughs> well, Dan, we um, it's fall here in New England, and the trees are starting to turn, and usually that means that there are new television seasons premiering. And for about the 10th season now, we are without a Star Trek series. But today, we're in luck, because we do have a premiere to talk about after the after some news items, don't we? We do. We have some uh, exciting uh, new episode information to share with everybody. We're going to go through all that. Um, do you want me to, to to give everyone the surprise now, what we're talking about, or do we want to go through our news first? I don't know that it's really a surprise since the episode nah, has the particular title, but why don't you tell us what it is? <laughs> As everybody knows, we love Star Trek Continues. Um, they just released their fifth episode called Divided We Stand. It is the first episode that takes place off of the Enterprise, and we are going to do a full recap 
uh, of the episode. We're going to talk about what we liked, what we didn't like. Uh, some little uh, extras are going to be thrown in there. Um, they premiered the episode in Salt Lake City uh, about a week or so ago. Um, and uh, we were very excited, as always, to see a new episode come out. And uh, we can't wait to talk about it after the news. Back to you, Bill. <laughs> Thanks, Dan. We do want to point out that uh, it is going to be a spoiler-tastic and spoiler-filled discussion on Star Trek Continues Episode 5, Divided We Stand. So if you decide to hold off, um, we'll warn you again before we start talking about it uh, after the, the news section, but uh, we do want you to be aware that there will be nothing but spoilers in this discussion. So prepare yourself, friends. So that said, Dan. Spoiler alert. <laughs> Red alert. Shields up. There you go. Arm the phasers and photons, all hands to battle stations. Wow. Hey, I'm, I'm taking this seriously. So, Dan, there are some news items, as we've mentioned a couple of times now, and um, let's uh, let's talk about them briefly. As you know, this week, their filming began in Dubai for part of Star Trek Beyond. So they've wrapped in Vancouver, and they've moved on to Dubai because it's got a rather futuristic-looking uh, uh, look about it. Wow, hey, mm-hmm. that, was, that was good English, wasn't it? Landscape. <laughs> Thank you. That's, the, that's you the big word I'm looking for. That was a tough one. So, I hear that they're only going to be in Dubai for a couple of weeks, which I find interesting. Yeah, Dubai, uh, there's a lot of Star Trek activity in Dubai lately. Uh, Bill Shatner and Vic Mignogna were out there a couple months ago, and now they're filming Star Trek Beyond out there. It'll be interesting to see. I I also saw some uh, leaked footage, or leaked pictures, I should say, that you sent along to me uh, the other day of some of the sets from Vancouver, which, uh, if you could get through the unbelievably ugly TMZ logo in the smack middle of everything. Um, kind of looked interesting. Uh, it, it's good. I, I'm waiting for the leaks of what the plot's about. That's what, you know, these pictures are great, but there's nothing to go with. It's kind of hard to, to get excited about it too much. Well, you know, we should say that our friends at Trek Corps have had better photos of the sets being built in Vancouver than TMZ uh, and their watermark have ever had. Yeah. <laughs> so if you want to see photos of some of the stuff that had been occurring in Vancouver, go to trekcore.com and check those out because they've been all over it. But I think it's interesting that more and more films are choosing Dubai as a filming location. I know JJ was there recently filming part of the Star Wars movie. Yep. Um, there was an entire section of Mission, the last Mission Impossible movie, not the, the one that just came out, but the one before that, I think it was Ghost Protocol. Yes. Uh, that was filmed in Dubai, which Simon Pegg was there for, yep. obviously. And now... Star Trek because they allege that Dubai looks like a futuristic city. So yeah. it makes me wonder whether it's a stand-in for Earth or whether it's a stand-in for an alien world. I think that will be pretty fascinating. Is Dubai the place that they built the ski mountain inside of a building and have it all air-conditioned with snow and everything? Yes, it is. I saw that once on an episode of The Amazing Race, and I was like, really? Yeah. Really? Yeah. Okay, there's not too much money over there. No, nah, not at all. Oil anyone? <laughs> <laughs> well, Dan, in other news this week, it appears that Skype, which we used to record this very podcast, a product which is now from Microsoft, has developed its own universal translator of sorts, which is kind of yep. cool. It's very cool. Yet another piece of Star Trek technology back in the 60s that has come to fruition in real life. Uh and reading over the story, it looks like you can speak to someone over Skype in another language. I guess they're going to have five languages when it first launches. And it'll 
almost instantly translate what the person is speaking into whatever language you are listening to them in, which in our case would be obviously Klingon. <laughs> you got to wonder when that's you know that's going to be in there someday. <laughs> well, you know, Bing, the Microsoft search engine, already offers a Klingon translation. I did not know that. I don't use Bing, so that's cool. They do. I use it on occasion when I want to dump Klingon into an email and really mess with somebody. Uh, <laughs> at work, I should say. At work. Okay. Um, so I got to think that the translator will will pick that up at some point in Skype. But, you know, this reminds me of a story. So shortly after the premiere of Star Trek II The Wrath of Khan, so this probably would have been late 80, in 1982 or early 1983, I saw Gene Roddenberry at a lecture at Laconia High School in Laconia, New Hampshire. And I've mentioned this before. And after the lecture was over, he showed those infamous, you know, 16-millimeter uh, uh, outtake reels from the original series. Yeah. You know, he was just by the, the stage, you know, in the audience, signing autographs or, or meeting people. And he was uh, almost instantly, there was this flock of teenagers that came right up to him. And it was fascinating. And I got a chance to ask him, you know, do you really think that there will be all this amazing, you know, technology in the future? And he stopped doing, you know, what he was doing. And he looked at me and he smiled. He says, well, yes, don't you? And every time something like this happens, it reminds me of that moment. Because Gene was at least prescient enough to know that at some point somebody was going to create all these amazing things. Yeah. It just, we had no idea when. And this, you know, this sort of quote-unquote universal translator is pretty cool, man. Yeah, it is cool. It's, it's amazing. We could probably spend a whole podcast going over things that were in the 60s TOS that are now reality. We could probably do a whole episode on all the different things that have come out. We probably could, and maybe I could use that universal translator to translate you. And and when I send you messages, because my spelling's always wrong, and my punctuation's <laughs> always wrong, and my syntax is always wrong, as you always point out. Thanks, Bill. Don't forget grammar. Grammar. <laughs> <laughs> and Dan, lastly in news, um, as far as news items go, this week... Um, <laughs> Nerdapproof.com happened to pick up on one of the new Hallmark Christmas ornament offerings this year. And we've posted it on the Trek Geeks Facebook page. But uh, why don't you tell us a little bit more about it? Yeah, I will. Uh, I'll be happy to. It's funny because um, this story came out this week. But I was actually at the uh, main mall here in, in, in uh, South Portland, Maine, uh, a couple weekends ago when my wife was out uh, in Disney with my daughter and I was, I decided to walk into the Hallmark store. Cause I'm like, Oh, maybe the Christmas ornaments are out. So I went and looked and sure enough, every year I like to see what they have for star Trek. And there it was sitting there in all its display. I pressed the button and actually listened to the, to the dialogue of the 2015 Christmas ornament of Spock dying in star Trek II: the wrath of Khan. Merry Christmas, everyone. Hope you have a great day. <laughs> Deck the halls with radiation poisoning. Fa la 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 la. Yep, there it is. It's that pain of, and it's from Wrath of Khan. It's not into darkness version, which probably will be out next year. Um, but uh, yeah, Kirk and Spock, you know, between the plates of glass, you know, hands trying to touch each other, and you press the button, and you hear the. Now you have been your friend. Yeah, the whole the whole thing. Great. <laughs> you know, um, there are some people who like this ornament, and I understand on some level why. Because it is a fairly touching moment between Kirk and Spock. Mm -hmm. But 
it just seems really ill-timed by Hallmark, especially since Leonard Nimoy only died seven months ago. Yeah. Uh, it's just, it seems, it seems like a huge misstep. Yeah. And uh, it also, and yeah, it is, it's one of the most, uh, remember, uh, I, I don't know what the word is I'm looking for, but it's, it's one of the scenes that people remember the most out of probably all the movies. That's the one. Right. It's not a Christmas ornament. Regardless of how much people enjoy it, it's 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 the iconic character dying. It's kind of weird that it would be a Christmas ornament. I don't know about putting that in the front of my Christmas tree. Personally, for me, Hallmark has, for several years now, they have a ship that comes out every year. And now they're doing different scenes of different things. This being one, the arena scene with the Gorn was one that came yep. out recently. Yep. I do the ships. I don't do the I don't do many of the people ones. I've done a couple of them. But normally, I just get I just get the ships. They they have done and could have done so many other Spock moments. Um, why they chose this one, I get that it's iconic in a sense, but it just doesn't seem right for a Christmas tree, no matter right. you know what the events of this year were. Right. So if they're if I could, if they're going to do one like this, they might as well a good Spock moment. You know that could be you know along the same lines as they could have a an ornament of him throwing his plumic soup out of his quarters at Nurse Chapel. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah, they they could have they could have picked any they could have picked something for the animated series. They could have picked uh, yeah. old Spock with younger Spock. Yeah. You know, I think oh, that wow. would have been really cool. You know. So do you want it for Christmas, Bill? Uh, no, I really don't. You know, in years past, I've gotten some other ones. My wife has surprised me with some, which has been wonderful. But I don't know that this one really is a, is a must have for me. It, it, I, I do think it's a misstep. And perhaps it's because I'm still kind of, you know, uh, emotional over the, the death of Leonard Nimoy to some extent, like we talked about last episode. I am. Um, I just I can't see this going on my tree this year, really. Yeah, it's uh, it's too bad. I'm trying to remember. They did have the ship. I just can't remember what it was. Um, I'm trying to check real quick as we're as we're talking as to what the uh, what the ship is this year. I remember that when I saw it, I was not overly excited. It's the Enterprise B. That's what it is. Yeah, I'm definitely not uh, excited. Excuse by that. me, the Enterprise C. My apologies. Um, oh, and- I'm, now I'm even less excited. <laughs> Maybe they can have like a little temporal bubble behind it. <laughs> Yesterday's Enterprise, not one of my favorite episodes. No? No, we can talk about that in a future time. But Yeah, absolutely. Um, eh, even yeah. when it first premiered, I was like, meh. So many eh. people love it. And it's not that I don't get it. It's just that I don't like it. I do like it. So that'll be definitely something we want to talk about. I'm going to write that down for a future podcast center. Yesterday's Enterprise. We should, Spelling is correct. We, oh, that's a first. We should talk about things that we disagree on in one episode because yeah. it sounds like I'm sure to most people that we agree on almost everything we do, and that's definitely not true in the Star Trek universe. That is true. Yep. I would agree with that. That sounds like a good idea. Let's do it. So look for that episode soon. Um, now, on a different point, you'll remember in the last episode, we talked a little bit about the Temporal Prime Directive. Yes. Um and what it means. And we wanted to clarify that a little bit because there was a little discussion on our Facebook page about whether we got it right or whether we got it wrong. So we're using uh, Memory Alpha as our source on this, as we do for a lot of things. Yes, we know it's a wiki, and yes, it can be edited by anybody, but they do more often than not have amazingly correct information on their page. Would you agree with that, Dan? 
I would agree with that. It just goes to show that people that are posting stuff for Star Trek really want to make sure we get it right. They do, and I appreciate their passion, and I'm glad they're keeping us honest. So at one point in the episode last week, we agreed that the Temporal Prime Directive was discussed in DS9's Trials and Tribulations. And in fact, it is not. Correct. They do reference Starfleet... Starfleet? Starfleet. Starfleet Regulation 157, Section 3, Paragraph 18, which is not named specifically as the, uh, the Temporal Prime Directive. The only time the Temporal Prime Directive is mentioned by name is in Voyager. At first, mm-hmm. when they meet Captain Braxton from the 29th century in his timeship, and then again in a passing me- mention in Endgame when right. Admiral Janeway mentions it. So we don't know if there's actually a temporal prime directive by the time Janeway is an admiral in the future, mm-hmm. and we'll never know. Yep. But there definitely I... is not in the, in the Voyager uh, DS9 next-gen time frame. Even though there might be veiled references to it, it is not specifically named. And I will take the hit for that because I was the one who said that it was referenced in that episode. So it happens very, very rarely, Bill. (laughs) Well, I have to take the hit, too, because I agreed with you, (laughs) which is a rarity in and of itself. Wouldn't you agree? (laughs) Wow, what a dummy. (laughs) I know, right? Right? Yeah. So, yeah, we've had good discussions over it on and and that. Janeway talked about and she actually said, oh, the temporal prime directive with her cat claw and um, uh We've had discussions that was that just a veiled reference as what Braxton told her because she has gone through – she went through that episode even though she's the admiral now. Another time thing can get confusing and everything. We won't get into detail about it. But it was a good conversation and um, I have to agree. Yeah, there's no there's, – there's nothing that says that there is definitively a temporal prime directive. I would like to think that there is, but that's just me. I would like to think that there isn't. Because uh, I know why have two prime directives at some well, point? Maybe it's like a sub chapter subcategory. <laughs> I can believe a temporal incursion policy that the one that is referenced in DS nine um, that Bashir mentions during past tense part one. I mean, that's not the name. He, he, I think he called it temporal displacement policy, but I think incursion would be better. Mm-hmm. Um, that to me makes more sense. To have a prime directive and then to have an additional prime directive means that one of them can't be very prime. True. That's, that's a good point. A very good point. They do use – don't they use temporal incursion and year of hell? Um, I think that's, that's the, the wording that they use, isn't it? I don't know for sure. So I'm going to go with your recollection on that because yeah. the last time I saw year of hell was when it aired. Oh, okay. That is a good episode. Um, yeah, I think it's a temporal incursion and then counterindications, something along those lines. Okay. My big takeaway from uh, Year of Hell, aside from the fact that it's a fantastic two-parter, by the way, mm-hmm. was um, <laughs> the line that Janeway uses before she crashes the Voyager just seemed very punny, like almost in an Arnold Schwarzenegger, Batman, and Robin kind of punny. Time's up. Yeah, time's up. <laughs> Uh, it's just every line Arnold Schwarzenegger had in Batman and Robin was a pun. Every single last one. And it just, I was like, oh, really? Time's up. They couldn't come up with something better. And I think about it. No, they really couldn't because it's Voyager. Hey! <laughs> Ooh, boom! Point one for Bill. I will say that uh, I have to say that I, because it's one of the worst movies ever made is what I've been told. Hmm. I've never seen that. I never watched Batman and Robin. I couldn't t- bring myself to watch it. Yeah, don't. Skip it. No, not going to. Not going to. So, 
All right. Well, that does it for news. Um, now, before we move on to the recap for Divided We Stand, we may as well sound the red alert klaxon. Wait, wait, wait. I was actually going to insert the sound effect later. <laughs> okay. Didn't sound like it. It sounded like it. <laughs> That's the magic of editing. Okay. Let's try it again. <laughs> no, let's press on. We'll just use this. Um, so if you don't want to know any spoilers about Star Trek Continues Divided We Stand episode, please pause this podcast here and then go watch Divided We Stand and then come back to us because we truly do not want to ruin anything for you. So we're giving you as much warning as possible. From here on in, be spoilers. And so we can't state that, you know, more urgently. So we'll give you a second to pause. In fact, after the music, we'll come back with the recap. So if you're going to pause, pause now. But for the rest of you, please hold on as we uh, start to recap Divided We Stand. The Enterprise has encountered Friendship 3, an interstellar probe launched from Earth approximately 170 years earlier, and the main computer has been infested with what Captain Kirk describes as a pathogen of unknown origin. The crew can't stop it, and the infiltration is spreading into the ship's library. What's more, it seems to be intelligent, and it's blocking the crew's every move at trying to halt the spread. Dr. McCoy comes to the bridge to chastise Kirk for missing his appointment in sickbay, but clearly there are more pressing matters at hand. Spock and Scotty attempt to cut off the pathogen, but the system goes into overload. At that moment, the console in front of Kirk and McCoy explodes, and we're left with a smoke-filled bridge. As the smoke clears, we see Kirk and McCoy sit up in an outdoor setting, and there is rifle and cannon fire. They seem to be in the middle of an American Civil War battlefield and look bewildered as we go to the opening credits. Kirk and Bones need to get away from the battle and make a break for the trees. McCoy is wearing Confederate gray and Kirk, Union blue. They have no idea how they got there or what this really is. Parallel planet, illusion, time portal. Kirk says they have to assume it's real, and if they are really in Earth's history, they know the risks. They can't do anything to upset this history. Back aboard the Enterprise, Dr. Mabenga and Spock are discussing the patients in sickbay. Kirk and McCoy. They've been placed in partial stasis until Mabenga can figure out what they're dealing with. It seems like the explosion of the console and the bridge caused some of the pathogen to transfer to them, and now they are infected with the invaders. The doctor isn't able to slow down the pathogen, and he says that Bones and Kirk might only have a day or two. Meanwhile, Kirk and Bones are walking through the woods. Bones points out that he outranks Kirk in these Civil War uniforms when they are stopped by a Union patrol. Kirk tells them that he was transporting his rebel prisoner, and the patrol sergeant notices that McCoy still has his weapon. Something isn't quite right. The sergeant suspects that Kirk may be a secessionist in Union Blue. He disarms McCoy and begins an impromptu interrogation for information, slapping and punching McCoy around. Kirk demands a stop to his tactics, pointing out that McCoy is a doctor and he can help their wounded. And, if he continues, he'll be forced to report the sergeant to his superiors. The sergeant asks who Kirk is, and Kirk gives his name. 10th Pennsylvania Reserves? Uh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Oh, then, yeah, we're super glad you're here to help. Let's get back to... Just then, the sergeant is shot by a Confederate sniper hiding in a tree. Who knew? 
McCoy tries to treat the sergeant, but of course he's using stone knives and bearskins. <laughs> Kirk checks on the sniper, and he's just a boy. And Kirk tells the patrol to dig a grave for him. McCoy needs to help the sergeant and asks for a knife. A young soldier steps up and assists Bones to remove the bullet. Bones tells the young soldier to hold the sergeant and put pressure on the wound. The young man is overcome with nausea and rushes off to the side to lose his lunch. And Bones needs to get this guy to a field hospital. Kirk tells the young soldier there isn't anything to be ashamed about. He asks him his name. It's Billy. Billy Palmerton. He tells Billy Palmerton to keep his eyes peeled. Aboard the ship, Scotty is attempting to cut power to the computer systems. The bridge goes dark, and Chekhov reports that the pathogen has moved from the systems to the duotronic backup tapes. Spock's hypothesis was right. A new source of information was too much for them to ignore. They've got 26 seconds before it finishes infiltrating the tapes and moves on to another source. Spock orders Chekhov to jettison the backup tapes and to charge the phaser banks. The tapes are jettisoned and destroyed by the phasers. The Enterprise systems are safe. Dr. McCoy and Captain Kirk, however, are an entirely another matter. At the Union encampment, the patrol arrives and are greeted by a very weary Union doctor. He hasn't slept in over two days and could use McCoy's help. McCoy asks if he has to work in handcuffs, and the doctor orders McCoy to be unshackled. The doctor tells Kirk that this place is going to be a slaughterhouse tomorrow, and that worries Kirk greatly. Back on the Enterprise, Dr. McKenna walks through the turbo lift doors and onto the bridge to talk with Mr. Spock. He asks to see her, and he thinks it's reasonable to assume that the crew is concerned about the condition of the captain and the doctor. While he doesn't share the emotional vulnerability, as he calls it, he'd like for McKenna's counseling services to be available to the crew. She thinks it's a thoughtful observation, and she'll be available to anyone at any time. Anyone. Seriously, anyone. Spock. Even you. Hello? In, in. Nudge, nudge. Dr. Mabenga calls from sickbay. He reports that McCoy and Kirk are stable, but he's noticed something interesting. Their neurological levels are incredibly high for people in comas, and they seem to spike at the exact same time. It's as if they're sharing the same experience, linked consciously, as it were. Spock wants Chekhov to figure out which point in history the pathogen was at when the cutoff occurred and the console exploded. Hey, there's only a few thousand years of that, right? So Chekhov is going to have his work cut out for him. Back in the Union camp, Kirk and the soldiers are sitting around a campfire. Billy Palmerton says that for every rebel he kills tomorrow, he's going to put a notch in his belt. Another soldier just doesn't understand why they're doing so much killing and dying just to set some slaves free. Kirk tells him it's not about freedom for some people. It's about freedom for everyone. And without freedom for everyone, they're all slaves. These troops have serious doubts in the mission and the war after all the death they've seen. They have families, they have lives, and none of this seems to make any sense to them. Kirk tries to boost their confidence and morale. He can't change the past, but he knows that these men are supposed to fight this battle, even though it's pitting brother against brother. Bones makes his way over to the campfire and can use a cup of coffee. The Union soldiers leave that the Confederate do- as the Confederate doctor sits down. Kirk asks Bones how he's holding up, and it's been tough. Amputations, bullet wounds, no pain medicine. He's never, going, he's never been able to imagine something so terrible. Kirk says it's his fault Bones is there. If he'd just gone for his physical, Bones wouldn't have even come onto the bridge. Bones says it would be worse if Kirk was there alone. He knows Kirk is expected to go out there and fight tomorrow, and Bones tells him he's going to have to kill, and Kirk hardly needs the reminding. He knows this, 
all too well. The next morning, the troops are mustering and heading for the field of battle. Billy, Billy Palmerton, tells Kirk that he's scared, and Kirk says he's brave to admit that. Billy doesn't feel all that brave, though. Kirk tells him to stay close, and he'll make it through. At that moment, the charge order is given, and the Union troops advance forward toward the enemy, and the battle commences. Kirk is ordered to fire by a sergeant and shoots his rifle over the head of the advancing Confederate army. The sergeant doesn't understand why he's doing this and is himself shot by the Confederates. Billy runs away from the battle and Kirk chases after him just as a cannon goes off. It appears that the captain has been hit and falls to the ground. Chekhov thinks he's found the right part of Earth history. According to the computer, the pathogen was consuming data on 1862 when the explosion happened. Specifically, the Battle of Antietam, or the Battle of Sharpsburg, if you hail from the southern United States. September 17th, 1862, the single bloodiest day in Civil War history. Casualties and losses totaling over 22,000 from one battle. This is likely the subconscious imagery that Dr. McCoy and Captain Kirk are both linked in. In the field hospital, Kirk is brought in with a severe leg wound, and Bones is on duty. The bone is shattered, the tissue is bad, and Bones can't stop the bleeding he has to amputate below the knee. Kirk is given a piece of wood to bite down on as his only anesthetic. Bones asks Kirk for his forgiveness as he proceeds to saw off the damaged part of his leg. Mabengo was able to isolate one of the pathogens and remove it, and it's not a virus. It seems to be some sort of nanite, a group of cube-shaped microscopic computers that are networked together, and that's why Kirk and McCoy are linked. Just then, Brain impulses in both McCoy and Kirk begin to spike. The captain is in distress, and the tissue in his leg is dying, the same leg that was just amputated in the Civil War field hospital. As Kirk lies on the table in the hospital, McCoy keeps thinking that this just can't be real. Kirk tries to reassure him that Bones did what he had to. He asks him what happened to Billy, Billy Palmerton, who is now lying on the table next to him. He's not really injured per se. McCoy just thinks it's a case of the nerves and doesn't know that he can blame him. Kirk looks over at Billy and then notices the crutches meant for him, crutches that he'll now need to be able to walk, presumably, forever. Scotty enters sickbay, and Spock has a theory. If McCoy's and Kirk's brain functions can be temporarily shut down, they can draw the nanites to another source. Mabenga worries that since the nanites have been feeding on a biological host, they may not be as easy to lure away this time. Spock says the ideal bait would be something cybernetic with both biological and mechanical parts. Nurse Burke interjects that a prosthetic limb would be ideal and that there's a crew member with such a biomechanical limb, but his identity is only known to the medical staff. Spock tells her the captain and doctor's lives are at stake and asks her for his name. In the field hospital, Billy, Billy Palmerton, has awakened. Kirk asks him what happened, and he tells Kirk he was wrong about him that he could be brave. He says he ran and got scared and ran right into a tree. He wanted to believe Kirk about there being something more to fight for. But when the time came, neither he nor Kirk could shoot anyone. Kirk says he couldn't because he doesn't belong there. He can't tell Billy why because he wouldn't understand. Kirk tells him it isn't his fight, but it is Billy's. He then shows Billy his amputated limb and tells him this wasn't supposed to happen. He isn't supposed to be here, but Billy is. Kirk tells him to fight and to stand up. Bones rushes in and gives Kirk morphine because Kirk is agitated. When Kirk is back on the table, Bones observes that Billy is awake 
and asks him if he's ready to give up his bed because there are plenty of other men who could use it. Good patent reference there. The doors to sickbay swoosh open and in walks Lieutenant Drake, the Enterprise's security chief. He's the one with the biomechanical limb and he potentially holds the key to the survival of the captain and the doctor. There's only one problem, though. All three could be at risk if it doesn't go right. Drake says he'll do it without hesitation, and he understands the risks. Kirk awakens in the field hospital again, and Billy's gone. He asks the man in the bed where Billy used to be where he went. The old man says that he'd never seen anything like it in all his life. Billy led the charge across the bridge on what seemed like certain death, using Kirk's own words as his rallying cry. That charge broke the rebel line, but Billy didn't survive. No one up front did. It was that charge, though, that stopped the fighting. Just then, someone opens the door to the tent and announces that the president is there. Kirk gets a gleam in his eye and looks for his crutches. He hobbles out of the tent with Bones' assistance to see none other than one of his heroes, President Abraham Lincoln. Bones says that was definitely worth getting out of bed for. Kirk ponders how many men get to see history unfold with one of its greatest contributors. Bones tells him he's a lucky man, and Kirk agrees, but he'll never be the man he was. Bones tells him that a man with one leg can stand just as tall as any other if he has a purpose, maybe even taller. In sickbay, Drake's arm is hooked up to a device, and the brain activity of the captain and doctor has been interrupted. The nanites are taking the bait, and they're migrating to the prosthetic limb. Once they've transferred, Drake is then ushered to the transporter room. Stimulants are given to Kirk and McCoy because there is always stimulants in sickbay, and they wake up. They find themselves slightly confused, but Kirk has two legs, and they realize none of it was real. With everything back to normal, Kirk is back on the bridge of the Enterprise and is joined by McCoy and Lieutenant Drake, the latter of whom is missing his arm. Kirk tells Drake that he doesn't know how to thank him, and McCoy says he does. Starfleet Medical has developed a new and improved prosthetic limb, and there's one on board a shuttle on its way to the Enterprise right now. It's got better response and construction. Drake jokes with Kirk that maybe it's time for another spar in the gymnasium, and Kirk jokes back that he'll have to get back to him on that one. The captain calls down to the transporter room and directs Scotty to beam the prosthetic limb into space. Kirk asks Drake if he has any parting words, and Drake gives the order to fire phasers. The limb is destroyed, and the nanites are gone. Bones theorizes that there are probably more of them out there, and Kirk tells him he's probably right, and... God help anyone who encounters them. Kirk then tells the doctor he thinks Bones is right. Even taller, he says. Bones looks at Drake and smiles. Drake is obviously confused, and then McCoy clarifies. It's something a wise man once said. A man with one leg can stand even taller. And Kirk follows that up with, or one arm. Kirk orders Chekhov to plot a course to rendezvous with the shuttlecraft carrying the new limb. He doesn't want to keep him waiting especially now that he has a sparring match to lose. So, Dan, that sums up the episode pretty much entirely. Um, We did notice a few bits of trivia in there, though, didn't we? Yeah, we did, actually. Um, I will say I will give you the credit for this. Um, because you finally have watched an episode more than me, that you actually found some great trivia uh, in there. But um, yeah, let's talk about that a little bit. A couple of couple of things that were interesting. Um, some eagle-eyed viewers will notice that Dr. Mabenga has a first and a middle name that we finally get to see uh, on screen. 
Um, if you remember when they're showing when uh, the doctor is showing Spock what the nanites look like at the bottom of the screen, you can actually see um, his name. It is Lieutenant Mabenga. Oh gosh, I don't even know if I can pronounce this right. Hablio, Jablio. Uh, maybe it's Habilo or Jabilo. I'm not sure which. Yeah, I think Habilo. Uh, Habilo works. Habilo Jeffrey uh, is uh, is his name. We don't really know for sure where the Jeffrey comes from, but uh, Habilo is a direct reference to David Mack's amazing novel Harbinger, uh, and it actually means healer in Kenyan. So that's kind of cool. Yeah, I thought that was pretty neat on the slide. I mean, you see the star date there. You see what looks like a real Earth solar date. Mm-hmm. Uh, in the far left-hand corner. But then they also dig out uh, microns and throw that up there, which I thought was pretty cool. Yes, uh, and the date, October 13th, 2269. So it's nice to see that reference because, as we know, we could get into huge discussions about what star dates are and what it references in real time. So that was kind of cool. I liked it. Yeah, me too. Hablio. Jab, hab, uh, <laughs> <laughs> if we ever have David Mack on, we'll ask him. <laughs> we will. Uh, okay, and the second thing that was really cool is uh, Lieutenant Drake is actually called Cad by Captain Kirk, um, and he explains that his name is William Cadmus Drake. And for those trivia buffs, Cadmus was the founder and first king of Thebes, who was also credited with introducing the Greeks to the Phoenician alphabet, uh, which would later be adapted into the Greek al- alphabet. So you got to wonder, dude, are these – did they purposely do these things, throw these Easter eggs in there? kind of cool i think so i know that the story came from vic and the script was co-written by mark cushman who co-wrote the these are the voyages books mm-hmm. so it, it'll be interesting to find out where some of these came from uh who decided to use the david mack reference you know who decided to throw in cadmus yep. uh, who decided antietam that's that's pretty yeah. fascinating it wasn't gettysburg it wasn't any of the others um, so that's, uh, that's all fascinating. And I'm sure that we'll get to ask people that as time goes on. Uh, but for now, after a quick break, we'll be right back to talk about what might've worked for us and maybe what didn't. Audible is offering a free audiobook download with a free 30 day trial to listeners of the Trek Geeks podcast. So you can check out their service. You can select your free audiobook from over 150,000 titles in Audible's library. And if you're interested in Star Trek titles, you might even check out one of these currently available on Audible.com. Imzadi, Spectre, The Return, Sarek, and my favorite, The Eugenics Wars, The Rise and Fall of Khan Noonien Singh. To download your free audiobook today, go to audibletrial.com slash trekgeeks. Again, that's audibletrial.com slash trekgeeks for your free audiobook. And we would like to thank Audible.com for sponsoring our episode. So, Dan, there was a lot to digest in this episode. Um, there's, it's long. It's, or it seems long, probably because there are mm-hmm. so many cuts between the Civil War portion and the Enterprise portion. Yep. But specifically, what worked for you in the scope of this episode? There are a few things that I, that I made note of that I think really worked. First of all, and again, people are going to laugh, the job by Vic and, and Chuck was fantastic. I thought both of them did an amazing job. Um, White Iris is probably the most emotional episode that Vic had to film. But for me, this was the best acting job that he and Chuck have done to date in all five episodes, I think, for lots of reasons. Facial expressions, um, being in an outside environment is the first time. Um, you gotta, you got to do things differently than when you're on set. Uh, one of my favorite moments of the whole episode was when the smoke cleared at the very beginning and Kirk and McCoy saw where they were. 
I thought that from an acting perspective, the look on Vic's face as Kirk was one of kind of like tempered panic. He's he's freaking out, but he's still a captain, so he has to keep it reserved. Yeah. But there's still just that edge of, oh, my God, what's going on? Um, I also thought that uh, uh, the same scene, I liked how uh, Chuck Cuber, every cannon shot that went off, you could see him flinch, and he was kind of looking around, and he was more panicked looking than Kirk was, which was another good um, – acting job by both you know kirk has to be you know the stoic you know in charge guy but uh mccoy was bouncing all over the walls i thought the sense of bewilderment seemed real yes um you know it's just as you said for the moment he sits up which is a beautiful shot by the way it is the transition from the enterprise bridge to the explosion to the civil war era is is very well done and it's edited together very well Mm -hmm. to the point where you see that smoke clear you expect to see the bridge and you're like huh what What's this? Why are we outdoors? And then Kirk sits up, and it's a beautiful use of that. Um, The shot is framed perfectly. It just it it's probably one of my favorite shots of the whole show, even though Mm -hmm. it it does nothing more than establish where they are. But I think it's key to the whole experience that Kirk and McCoy are having, right? Because we are left as bewildered as they are. Yep. One of the things that I didn't notice when we were out in Vegas, we we were um, at the screening of the White Iris, and they showed a the first two minutes of yep. of this episode, and you know the excitement was you know we were both like oh my god this is going to be awesome so we're watching it and it when that shot happened in Vegas I didn't catch that Kirk was wearing Union and McCoy was wearing Confederate gray oh really that I didn't notice that until the, when we were playing uh, golf with Vic the next night he mentioned it and I was like. Okay, I don't really want to tell him that I didn't catch that because I was just so excited of what was going on, but I'll just go with it. <laughs> <laughs> I caught it. And I was like, I know you did. Huh. Yep, you did. I figured yeah. it made sense for McCoy to be in Confederate grave because of his, Absolutely. you know, his being a southern country doctor. Yep. Which I don't know how you do that in the future, but that's for another time. Um, <laughs> it, you mentioned uh, the acting by Vic and Chuck, and I have to echo that. I think that my favorite scene is the amputation scene. And the look on Bones's face when he realizes what he has to do, you know, and Kirk says, what, what can you do here? You know, right. not what could you do if you're on the, on, in sick bay on the enterprise, what could you do here? And the only answer is I got to take that leg. Yeah. Uh, the look on Bones's face and the flash on Kirk's face when he realizes, Oh man, yeah, this is going to suck. Yeah. And then they give him this tiny little piece of wood to bite down on. Also wood. <laughs> I, uh, I don't know about you, but even though I knew that it was happening in their heads, I was like, are you kidding me? Yeah. Yeah. What? Yep. I, and and the saw, to me, this a rusty looking saw, this big, wah, uh, uh, and it's unfortunate. That's what they had to really do back in those days, back in the Civil War. But yeah, Chuck's, Chuck's look on both of their faces was great. Uh, and the forgive me, Jim line was one that I didn't expect and loved. Yeah, I agree. It becomes increasingly apparent to me that these actors um, have grown even further into these roles. You know, you could compare them between um, the beginning of Star Trek Continues and now. And with Chuck, you'd have to start with episode three. But, and they've become increasingly more comfortable and they have assumed these personas, you know, a lot more flawlessly and smoothly as we see these episodes. And I think that they are great depictions of Kirk and McCoy in particular. But when you consider other characters like Spock and Scotty and and the rest of the crew, um, it is, it is increasingly 
more fun to watch as we get these episodes. Yeah. One of the things that I thought was fun to watch and shows you how comfortable he's become in the role of McCoy is the first scene with McCoy with McCoy when Chuck is on the turbo lift, the doors open, he's kind of like just cleaning his nails and he's got like a funny look on his face. And then he just comes out off the bridge and just starts giving Kirk sass. I thought that was, <laughs> that's a, that's, he is, he is really taking that McCoy character into his own. Uh, it was perfect McCoy material. I loved it. <laughs> he's like, I am going to give him so much grief right now. Oh, <laughs> oh, sorry, Jim. <laughs> <laughs> not, ta- not now bounce. That's a good line. Too. <laughs> not now bounce. Now bounce. Yeah. Um, Dan, what else worked for you? Dr. Mabenga worked for me. It was good to see another character from TOS show up. Yeah. Uh, I thought Martin Bradford did a good job because there's not a lot that we've seen with Dr. Mabenga. He was only in two episodes of the original series, uh, Private Little War and That Which Survives. Um, I always thought he was an interesting character, and I distinctly remember going to see Star Trek The Motion Picture. And when McCoy beamed onto the ship with his full beard and Kirk said, well, for a man who swore he'd never return to Starfleet – I actually went to my looked at my brother and said, "I wonder if Mabenga's the chief medical officer." Interesting. Yeah. So it was. I mean, only two episodes, but I I I had always wanted to see more. So I'm really glad that they brought him back, even if it was just for a few scenes. I mean, that's what they do uh, in Star Trek Continues. It worked. It worked very well. Not having an unknown doctor working on them, having somebody that we've seen before. I am too, and it was nice to see a doctor that you know could very easily substitute for McCoy. You know, we always assume that the crew of the Enterprise are the best and the brightest at everything, mm-hmm. that they're the best people for this job. And it's good to see that, you know, to use a football analogy, there's depth at that position. Yep. Because if anything yep. ever happened to McCoy, you know, Mabenga could step in and very easily be an outstanding chief medical officer. Yep. As both of us work in IT, single point of failure is never a good thing. No, it's really not. <laughs> and I have to say the treatment of Mabenga in the script is really, really well done. The character yep. is written very well. Yep, I, I agree. Um, one of the other things that I really liked was Stephen Dangler's role in this, for Lieutenant Drake. Yeah. Um, dude, he is the hero of this episode. I mean... <laughs> and he doesn't come in until like the last 10 minutes. <laughs> I know. It's... um. I would I'll tell you what, I would have loved to have been a fly on the wall when everyone was discussing who the hero was going to be for this episode and who actually came up with the idea. I know Vic wrote it, but was it Vic's idea to have Drake? Was it Steve's idea to have Drake? Was it somebody else's idea to have Drake as the hero? Um, Steve's been in every episode of Star Trek Continues as as a contributor and and as a and he's one of the co-executive producers, but he really Unfortunately, up until now, hasn't really had much to do. He hasn't had many speaking roles. I think he's. I think in the Mirror Universe episode, he had a couple lines. Um, so it was. It was good to see someone that's been such a a big contributor to Star Trek Continues. Literally gets to save the day and saves the lives of freaking Captain Kirk and Doctor McCoy. They keep giving him more and more to do in each of these episodes, and I think that's a testament to how continues is sort of creating its own canon of sorts mm-hmm. you know it's creating a canon that works in the scope of the original series but it's it's definitely clearly separate and defined at some point we don't know what happens to drake because obviously that character doesn't exist in the prime universe right. in the movies right but they're creating a a layered character who is interesting and more than just the guy with the phaser who shoots things and i think that that's right. really the nicest part about that character None right. of the red shirt guys before have had this much depth other than Scotty. And mm-hmm. it's a it's a nice addition to the cast. I think so. 
I think so too. So Dan, uh, what else you got for me? Well, one other thing I wanted to point out that I thought was really uh, something that caught my ear more so than in the past is the musical score in this episode. Uh, big shout out to the uh, Star Trek Continues Orchestra because it was it was as close to a TOS score as I've heard so far. White Iris sounded a little bit off music-wise. I don't know if you agree with that or not, but this one was perfect. I mean, the the historical, you know, American music and, and the percussions that they use with it, it sounded just like the original series music. And I thought that uh, the orchestra did a good job making it sound original. I thought the music for White Iris was was really well done. Um, but I Oh, do, I thought it was too. I do like what they did with the score in this particular episode. And there are three moments that stand out for me. In the beginning, when you realize that Kirk and McCoy are on a Civil War battlefield and you sort of get that treatment of the Star Spangled Banner mm-hmm. with the... Uh, uh, I believe the solo trumpet that yep. it sounds a little strained, which I think is perfect for the scene. And then later on, there's a very almost melancholy treatment of the score around the campfire. Yes. Um, which I thought was beautiful. And at first I thought, you know, it sounded, the key sounded off to my ear, even though it was perfect. But as you listen to the score more and more, you realize that, you know, this is supposed to be a solemn moment. And Kirk knows that there's a lot at stake tomorrow, and he's got to go into battle and potentially kill people. And so I thought that the score was beautiful as it underplayed that part of the yep. scene. Yep. It, when I went back and watched it, you know, in other viewings, I, I fell in love with that bit of the scene more and more because it, it really, I thought, punctuated the fact that this is going on and that Kirk is having this, this inner struggle and inner dialogue, even though it wasn't necessarily you know, out there in front of everybody. So, and then lastly, the little, um, the little bit of battle hymn at the Republic at the end before they went (laughs) to the final credits, I thought was, was really cut in very well. You know, uh, kudos to the maestro and to the entire, um, orchestral staff. They really did a fantastic job with this episode. I will say one thing in, in regards to your second comment or your second one that stood out, that was an important scene. But I think the music in that scene actually saved the scene because I've watched that scene a couple times. It's a little – it's melancholy, but it's it's a little – it starts – it gets a little slow. Okay. It's supposed to probably, but I think the music is what keeps that scene going, I think. Um, so people say that, you know – can can you imagine watching a TV show or a movie without the music? Because the music plays a very important part. And I think that was a perfect example of that. I think in this episode in particular, the music is almost a character. Mm-hmm. And that's not true of every Star Trek episode. But I think in this one, it definitely is important in understanding what's going on with right. with Kirk and McCoy on the battlefield. Yep. So we've talked about what we like. So now it's time to talk about what we may not have liked as much or not liked at all about this episode. Um, we have discussed from time to time that we always seem to love everything about what Star Trek Continues does, but there are things that, that kind of tweak us a little bit, and, and this episode is no exception. So, uh, Bill, uh, what are some of your thoughts on things that could have been better or things that you just didn't like about what took place in Divided We Stand? Um, it's, it, it's tough because overall, I, I enjoy this episode a great deal, but I think that there are some things that maybe pacing wise or maybe 
maybe the organization of scenes, I think I might have done a little differently. Mm-hmm. I think it would have been more interesting to reveal that this was Antietam up front because I think that it adds uh, definitely a, a level of gravity to the situation that maybe we didn't get before. Mm-hmm. I mean, especially when you frame it the way that Chekhov framed it in the episode. If you do that up front, maybe right after the explosion happens, I think that that almost carries more weight through the episode and, and probably makes McCoy and Kirk seem like they're in a much more perilous situation. Yeah. Um, I, I think for me, that was probably first and foremost. Now, don't get me wrong. I don't think the episode is bad. I don't think it's poorly paced. Mm-hmm. But I think that from a, a writing perspective and an editing standpoint, I almost think I would have done it that way because Antietam is so huge in the scope of American history as the single bloodiest day in the Civil War. Okay. What do you think? Um, I, I, would, I agree with that. Um, one of the things that I actually jotted down when I was watching it, and this isn't so much a, 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 a negative, but it did seem to be the quote-unquote slowest of the five episodes so far, but was it designed to be that way because you're talking about civil war and death and everything like that? So, I mean, it may have been purposely been, Vic and team may have purposely wanted it to be a slowed down episode, whereas White Iris was a dramatic episode. It didn't seem that some of the uh, some of the scenes were kind of slow. I kind of got that with this but again, was it meant to be like that? Because like the moment, the campfire is a perfect example. You know, uh, that's that's kind of my second note. I on my first watch, I thought that perhaps some of the scenes were too long, and now I've seen it six times, and I've sort of changed that position as I've watched it more. I think that whereas at first I might have thought some of the scenes were too long, I think that right now they're probably exactly the right length for what's happening. Okay, and it took me a few watches to figure that out. Um, is you mentioned the campfire scene. I, I think that it's important to know what the Union troops are thinking and what they're having a problem with and that they do have this doubt. And I kind of missed how crucial the doubt was before because it plays right into the whole Billy, Billy Palmerton angle. <laughs> um, and I say it like that jokingly just because it was very Kirk-esque at some point when, yep. when, the, when the actor gave the line. So I... I do like I like the campfire scene in particular because I think it is probably the wo- most weighted scene of that portion of the episode. That's a good way to describe it. Weighted. That's good. Yeah. Um, I didn't get. I didn't grasp that at first, and I'm glad I've watched it a few more times to to really sort of soak it all in and 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 understand what that scene means for the rest of the episode. Yeah. I I, I think that. Perhaps I was concentrating on something else too much at the time, or maybe I just missed it, or maybe I just didn't think about it enough. But it really does set up the conflict for Kirk the rest of the episode. Okay. It's like, I'm not supposed cool. to be here. You are. So Right. All right. Um, I will say that one of the things, I don't want to say this was something that didn't work for me, but it's something that was missing, I thought. Um, this takes place in season four, probably. Of the original series, if yeah. we're looking at it, yeah, I would have loved to have seen a reference to Excalbia from Kirk when he went out to see Lincoln. Um, the events from the Savage Curtain took place not too long before the events of this episode, uh, and it would have—I think—it really would have been a home run if Vic said, after just seeing him die, seeing him now, something along those lines. I thought that would have been a great reference to the original series episode. 
He just had his leg cut off. Ah, it's Lincoln. <laughs> he just had his leg cut off, but he jumped out of that bed as soon as he heard that Lincoln was there, mister. You know, I have to say, uh, the the sort of, you know, boyhood idol fanboyism that Kirk has when he realizes Lincoln is in camp yep. is beautiful. It's kind of was reminding me of me when we saw him walking down in Vegas. Oh, my God, it's fake! <laughs> Yeah, it was a good job. I would have loved to, and just to reference, I've always loved the name Excalvia too, so that's why I wanted to see it in there. Well, all right. Well, Dan, okay. let's uh, let's pass a verdict on this episode. Um, we try to do this with all of the, the episodes that we'll talk about and break down. So let's start with it first. Dan, is this Star Trek? Yes. Uh, I, Without a doubt, I think it is. Um, it's inner struggle. Uh, even though Time is not always one that it, it always can cause problems, as we've discussed. Um, it, it has that essence of, of Star Trek from the original series. Uh, they've got to resolve this problem without causing more of a problem. If it is a timeline thing, it's hard to describe. Other than yes, it is definitely Star Trek to me. I thought it was. I have to agree with you. It is absolutely Star Trek. It operates in the the spirit of the series. You could see this playing right along with original series episodes. It looks like Star Trek. It feels like Star Trek. These characters are the characters we know and love, and they're treated in a way in which they are incredibly familiar. So I think in that way, it absolutely is Star Trek. So let me follow that up. Did you like this episode? Yes, I did like Oh, absolutely liked it. Did I like it as better as much as other episodes? Probably not, but I did like it. I liked it a lot. I like it very like a lot. <laughs> <laughs> like a lot. I like it. I like it very much. Um, you know, when we did the White Iris, I was I was over the moon with that episode. I love it. I think it's incredibly emotional, and I think that it was perfect for where Star Trek continues is in its production or in its status as a production as it treats these characters. As a follow-up, Divided We Stand is wonderful. I like mm-hmm. it very much. I have to say, I think my favorite episode is probably Lolani at yep. this point. Yep. But Divided We Stand is probably up there with Lolani and White, White Iris. It probably is, you know, if those are number one for me, this is probably 1A. Okay. So I do like this episode very much. I mean, I know we talked about what we didn't like about this episode. It might sound to some like we hated it. I definitely do not dislike this episode in the least. It is oh, no. a it is a wonderful hour of Star Trek without question. Let me let me um, fall back on something that you were talking about a minute ago. One of the things that I think is so great about Star Trek Continues is I no longer see Vic, Chuck, Chris, Wyatt, any of these people playing the other characters. They are the characters now to me. Yeah, and and this this episode really takes that over the top, especially with Kirk and McCoy. I don't see an actor playing Bill Shatner's Kirk anymore, and I don't see an actor playing DeForest Kelly's McCoy anymore. I see these guys as those characters, and I think that is a wonderful testament to the work they're doing. I have to agree with you. I mean, at first I I thought about how does this compare to the original series and how does it compare to itself? And I think you just covered that beautifully. um, I see these actors as these characters and not Mm -hmm. just as these people playing these parts. Yep. You know, when I look at Chris Dewan as Scotty, I don't say, oh, that's Chris Dewan playing his dad's part. No, right. that's Scotty. Yep. You know, it's it's not uh, it's not Kim Stinger as, you know, 
as right. Nichelle Nichols Uhura, it's Uhura. Yep. You know, these actors do a wonderful job of bringing these characters to life. And not only does it compare well to TOS, it compares well to itself. Mm-hmm. As, we, as I mentioned before, this series is sort of now creating its own canon. Exactly. And it's nice to see it all fit yep. because these characters' shared experiences are being built with every episode. Agreed. I mean, can't, I can't add anything to that. That's a perfect way to put it. Well, Dan, I would have to say I give this episode a solid, solid four, four and a half out of five stars. Yeah, I would say four stars out of five. Yep. Um, no, like I said, it's not my favorite of the five, but that doesn't mean that it wasn't good because it was great. If this is, if you've enjoyed the previous Star Trek Continues episodes, you will without a doubt enjoy this one. It yep. is a Star Trek story in the greatest of traditions, and we really think that you'll be entertained by it and enjoy it a great deal. Uh, I know I did. I'm certain you did. I did. I just, I just don't want to see nanites anymore. They kind of look like Borg. <laughs> they look like Borg. Did you notice they look that? Like. I, I did notice that. The other thing I noticed the second time I was looking at it is, is I think I've shown you um, Metal Earth has these 3D models that you can buy now. Yeah. And they have a Star Trek line. They have a bunch of Star Trek ships that you can do. I'll tell you what, man. That picture of the Nanite reminded me exactly of a piece of that Metal Earth model because that they have the tabs and everything like that. Don't know why, but that's one of the first things that popped into my head other than the Borg. <laughs> that's pretty and funny. They, and they actually referenced the Borg a little bit, didn't you think? When Mbenga was talking about needing a cybernetic, you know, part machine, part organic, that's kind of a, was that kind of a little play on the Borg, you think? It's hard to say because, I mean, we're still, I have to presume in the Alpha Quadrant. Mm-hmm. Maybe we're oh, yeah. Beta, I don't know. But, you know, maybe we're on that line. It's hard to say. Um, could they have meant that? Yes. But, you know, that's kind of speculation on our part. Right. I'd like to think that, Maybe it was and maybe it wasn't. I'm not sure. I'm kind of torn. Yeah. So, well, Dan, why don't we uh, put this one to a close? And if people have questions or comments or they have a completely different take on Divided We Stand, how can they let us know about it? Yes. If you are divided, please let us know Uh, (laughs) on Twitter, Facebook, and Skype. Our handle is Trek Geeks. Uh, You can also send us an email at trekgeeks at starfleet.com or you can... Give us a phone call at 508-784-1701. Leave a voicemail. We'll be happy to play it uh, on a future podcast. Um, individually, if you want to send uh, Bill a tweet, his handle is at TrekGeekBill. And if you want to send me something, it is at DCDDS9. Also, as a reminder, uh, you can join the official Facebook group for Trek Geeks, which is called Camp Kittimer. Uh, share things that you love about Trek. Engage in conversation. Make some new friends, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, to join the group, just go to facebook.com slash groups slash Camp Kittimer. We'll let you right in and uh, also tell your friends about it. Uh, just remember that anything you say or any messages you leave anywhere for us to see uh, may be used in a future episode. So you're under the gun for that one. Indeed. And yep. especially if you have comments on Divided We Stand, we'd love to hear them. We'd love to insert them into the show and maybe talk about them. So, so please share your thoughts with us. Yeah, absolutely. Hey, also, one other reminder is, uh, as you may or may not know, all of our podcasts are available on iTunes. Uh, so we'd love it uh, if you subscribe to the podcast. That would be great. But if you're on iTunes and you see our page, uh, please feel free to give us a review, whether it's good or bad. We would love to hear what you think. It helps uh, on iTunes to have those reviews. Uh, we'd love to hear what you think. And uh, also, f- uh, please share the podcast with your friends because... The more the merrier, right, Bill? <laughs> Definitely, Dan. You know, the way iTunes, 
I don't. I don't. The way iTunes works is a little odd. We're not going to lie. Mm-hmm. So in order for your podcast to bump up in the search, people actually have to rate it and share it. So we'd like to reach as many people as possible. And if you all could give us a hand, that would be spectacular. And we'd greatly appreciate it. So Dan, that about does it for episode 33. We'll be back next week with episode 34. We have to, of course, every episode stop and thank our friends in the band Five Year Mission. Without them, this show would not as sound nearly as awesome as it does, even with Dan and me on it, quite frankly. They let us use their music every single week, and we can't thank them enough. They are a fantastic band. We hope you all go to fiveyearmission.net. Go get yourself a copy of Spock's Brain, which I'm holding here right now in my hot little hands, as Dan can yes, see. he is. He is. And uh, guarantee you'll love the album, but fiveyearmission.net. Let's get them. Uh, let's get them some albums sold, and let's uh, let's get them back as the house band at the fiftieth convention next year. Tweet to convention people. Let them know. Convention uh, Creation Entertainment. That's right. So, uh, Dan, that about does it for this episode. Uh, as usual, we remind everybody to live long and prosper. Coconut, coconut. Everybody say coconut. We're not gonna turn it off till I'm done singing coconut. <laughs> Okay, I'm done. What are you drinking today? Uh, right now, water. Ah, okay. I broke out my special Disney Halloween mug. Oh, very nice. Ah, like that. And I've got Pluto right there all dressed up. you got the goofer right there. That's goofer. That's pretty spiffy. Oh. Your face Spiff-tastic. is spiff-tastic. Spiff-tastic. <laughs> of course, you didn't use spoiler-tastic. You didn't use spoiler tastic seven times and text me last week like it was your mission that you accepted. <laughs> Coconut. <laughs> Blowconut. <laughs> Is that what an English person calls a coconut? You know, because they sometimes refer to people as blokes. Okay, no. Anyway. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Oh. <laughs> so how was your uh evening? Uh, good. Let me let me let me tell you a story. Dun, 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 dun. Here's a story of a guy named Danny. <laughs> okay, anyway. Um <laughs> I was hoping you were gonna tell the whole story like that. That would have been awesome. <laughs> so last night, uh Sue and I went out and had a drink and then got some nachos at this place down the street which they have the best nachos and it's not even a Mexican place. But uh but if they're nachos, whose are they? So we go down and we have a drink. <laughs> we get <laughs> and we get back and back to the house and uh um she's watching Downton Abbey now. <laughs> so and I'm I have about as much interest in that as she does as watching Lost or Breaking Bad. So, so obviously wait. I'm not. <laughs> so wait, does your wife listen to this podcast? Oh yeah. <laughs> she can probably hear me right now. She's probably at the door flipping me off. <laughs>
<laughs> she ought to be. Because <laughs> she's so going to hear you go, oh, don't nab me. <laughs> don't me. Oh, I'm Professor McGonagall. I'm still alive. Okay. Anyway. <clears throat> um, <laughs> oh, my God. She's my favorite character in Harry Potter, though, so I can say that. Anyway. Um, <laughs> oh, that makes it okay. <laughs> so she's watching a couple episodes of that. So I go upstairs, and I'm, I'm borrowing my nephew's Xbox One, and I'm playing a game called Sniper Elite 3. It's very good. It takes place in World War II, uh, and you're a sniper, obviously, hence the name of the game. And I spent two hours going through this mission, long time, doing all kinds of stuff. I wanted to make sure I got all the sub-tat quests and all that stuff. So I'm going along, and the final part of this section of the game I'm playing is I'm up on this sniper nest, and I'm waiting to assassinate a German officer. And I save the game right before I start this process. And I died because I... I did several times. So when I went to reset the saved point, for some reason, what that save point is automatically, like, you die because the officer hears you or something like that. So I have to redo the entire mission that I spent over two hours playing last night. Wow. Yeah. So don't you wish now you'd watch Downton Abbey? <laughs> no. No, you do. You do. I don't. I did watch. I, I watched a couple scenes with it the other night, and it was. It takes place in the early 1900s, I guess. And yeah, uh, World War One just started, or something like that. But I've, yeah, I've tried to watch did. Downton Abbey. It's just not for me. No, it's not for me either. Now it's not bad. If they could, th- if they could throw a smoke monster into Downton Abbey, and it's going around that house, and that that would be awesome. Then what, I'd watch it. What was that noise again? You sound like. A rabid mongoose. <laughs> okay. Hashtag rabid mongoose. <laughs> we'll do that today. <laughs> you, you, you might see that pop up. I'm just saying. <laughs> okay. Excellent.